History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 322nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we are heading down to New Orleans. And we're going to check out some haunted brothels down there. Excellent. Just so people know, not all of the locations that we talk about or madams that we're going to talk about necessarily have ghosts connected to them. Some things that we're going to be discussing about are just kind of important to the history or things that I wanted to mention. Sounds good to me. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Krista with a K, Haley with two E's at the end, Xander with an X, Duon, Allison, Shannon, Jacob, Yvonne, Alicia, Chris with a K, Connie, Katie with an IE, Kate, Boyd, Carrie with a K and an E-R-I, and Alexis. Welcome to the crew, guys. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Moment in Oddity was suggested by Kim Gasiorowski and Arena Garcia. Back in 2017, the Canizaro family decided to make a big change, and this was facilitated with an interesting purchase. Teresa and Adam Canizaro bought a former Masonic temple in Indiana and have been renovating it into their new home ever since. The couple and their three children had lived in San Diego all their lives, but they had wanted to change and thought that perhaps a farm in the Midwest would be perfect. A Masonic temple is no farm, but when they attended a family reunion in Indiana and spotted the building for sale, they immediately fell in love. The price tag was nice, too. They paid only $89,000 for the property. They quickly started renovating, starting with the bathrooms by installing a shower. The second floor has become their living space, which has the typical open floor design with a large kitchen and living room connected in that space. The offices were turned into five bedrooms. The great room on the third floor has become a movie theater for the family. The basement is wide open and the couple hope to eventually turn it into an event space for the community. But perhaps they could consider opening it up to investigations, as Teresa thinks the house is haunted and has heard the jangling of janitor's keys in that basement. The library is supposedly haunted too. Turning a 20,000 square foot former meeting place for a secretive male fraternity into a family home certainly is odd. up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. (laughs) And now, this month in history. In the month of January, on the 4th in 1981, truck driver Peter Sutcliffe confesses that he is the Yorkshire Ripper. Sutcliffe murdered 13 women over a six-year period. He attacked his first woman in 1969, but she didn't press charges. This started him down a road of targeting women, with his first murder victim being a mother of four. The women he killed were Marguerite Walls, Yvonne Pearson, Jane McDonald, Josephine Whitaker, Wilma McCann, Patricia Atkinson, Helen Reitka, Jacqueline Hill, Irene Richardson, Vera Millward, Barbara Leach, Jean Jordan, and Emily Jackson. It took a while to arrest Sutcliffe. He was questioned and released nine times because he gave a false alibi. The police had zeroed in on him because of a five-pound note left at the scene of a murder victim that was traced to a group of 8,000 workers who'd been paid with this set of bills. He initially was arrested for having false plates on his car. They found a hammer, knife, and rope in his car, and he confessed to being the Ripper. 
He claimed he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but was still found guilty and sentenced to 20 concurrent life sentences. An appeal was dismissed, and the court said he would never have the opportunity to be released. Kelly, before we discuss these brothels, I wanted to make this special note. The modern accepted vernacular at the time of publication for the term prostitute is sex worker. Right. We will not be using this term, not only because the historical value is questionable, but we find its use questionable. Exactly. Sex worker to us is impersonal and dehumanizing. We prefer to use ladies of the evening or just simply women or ladies. Also, we will be talking about madams. These were the boss ladies of the brothels, and we're torn on how to present them. These women were caught up in an industry that they had little choice in being a part of and managed to rise to the top. That is laudable. But they also were making money off of women being used for sex. They were better than a pimp, of course, but how much better, I don't know. I guess it depends upon who you're talking about. Some of these madams did pay their ladies a lot of money, so... Right, I think they, they ran the gamut in terms of whether they took better care of their, their girls than others. We tend to glamorize them in movies, books, and history. So what we're going to be doing on this episode is walking kind of a fine line. And of course, with that being said, this may not necessarily be the episode for children, although we're really not going to get into the down and dirty. Yeah, the down and dirty (laughs) of it all. So it might be okay for the kids to listen. Yeah, I would advise listening on your own first. And then if you want your kiddo to join in, then definitely it could open a good conversation in terms of historical facts, too. Storyville was about two things, women and music. This area was a famous red light district in New Orleans that would give birth to jazz. Today, it no longer exists, but its legacy does, and the place it holds in New Orleans history is significant. Brothels were plentiful in this city of vice, and some of these structures still stand today. The lady bosses of these establishments are some of the most famous people in New Orleans history, and some of them still have a hold on the city as the subjects of ghost stories. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of New Orleans brothels. decided to send some of her citizens to their territory known as Nouvelle Orleans to expand the population, the country didn't pick her best citizens. France sent its criminals. Kind of reminds me of what Britain did to Australia. Australia. Yeah, exactly. John Law was a Scottish financier who managed to worm his way into controlling this French colony in America. He told the Duke of Orleans that he had a plan to expand the population. It was his idea to send the criminals. He offered the male and female convicts a one-way ticket to the colony if they agreed to marry each other, and then they would have land and provisions. Wow. I I mean, for them, that's a great deal, unless you really just don't like your spouse. (laughs) And the way that I've seen it worded is that he picked the women out and said, go ahead and pick a guy. Oh, well, that's not so bad, I guess. Yeah, so at least they got their pick of the (laughs) lot there in the jail. 184 female prisoners picked mates and were married. They were shipped off to the New World where they actually would not have land or provisions. Well, then. It's one of those things where you make all these promises and it sounds wonderful. And then you get there and you realize you were lied to. Kind of sounds like some politicians. Yeah, pretty much everybody in Washington, D.C. Not to get political, but. (laughs) (laughs) Later, people from hospitals and asylums were sent as well. Before long, New Orleans was a crazy place that was very dangerous. I would imagine. For women, this new world was just more of what they already knew. Their main prospects were in the sex industry. Over the years, several areas of New Orleans became known as red light districts. The most famous of these was Storyville, which was on the outskirts of the French Quarter. The district ran along Basin Street, between Canal Street and St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, and between Iberville, which was originally Custom House, and Robertson Streets. The area got its name from Alderman Sidney Story in honor of the fact that he created an ordinance in 1897 to legalize prostitution in the area that became Storyville. The nickname Tenderloin District was sometimes used for it. 
Businesses ran here in the form of brothels and saloons from 1897 until 1917. Brothels ran the gamut from cheap, rundown buildings with cribs to fancy mansions for the upscale clientele. Some of the brothels were segregated, while others had a mix of races. Some may wonder why the city would legalize that sort of activity. This actually was so the city could have some control over a business that was getting way out of hand. Some women would do their business right on the street for very little money with any man that didn't mind a little exhibition. Other women would drag men back to their cribs and either rob them or rob them and kill them. And the police could never find their bodies. Kelly, we've talked about brothels in the past and this term cribs. These basically were closets that these women had, barely big enough to put a mattress in. Right. Kind of brings to mind like almost a, a cubicle, I guess. Exactly. And in New Orleans, I looked at some of these historical pictures where it would show these cribs. And basically what you were looking at is it was almost like having a storage unit that was right on the street, that the door just opened onto the street. Wow. It was just like a, a closet there on the street. That's okay. how low end the right. crib kind of thing would be. So there definitely was a difference here between having a crib or having these big grand mansions that were brothels. That we'll Certainly, I would imagine it's based upon what your clientele is willing to pay. New Orleans had a unique guide for the man about town looking for a good time, the Blue Book. Blue Books were basically guidebooks to send, giving clients all the information they needed for finding liquor and women, and they offered venereal disease cures. Well, that's handy. It was. So on one side, it would say, you know, here's this girl you can call, blah, 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 blah. And in case she gives you whatever. Oh, what my word. That, take this care is of that. where you pick up your antibiotics. <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> Not all of them were blue, even though they were called blue books. Some of them were actually red, too. The books were pocket sized and sold in barbershops, hotels, railroad stations and saloons. Hundreds of ladies of the evening were listed and categorized by race. To give you an idea of the contents, here are a couple of examples. A blue book published in 1907 described Madame Emma Johnson's brothel as Emma's home of all nations, as it is commonly called, is one place of amusement you can't very well afford to miss while in the Tenderloin District. Everything goes here. Good grief. Fun is the watchword, Kelly. Okay. <laughs> Another listing from a 1905 book reads, Miss Cummings also has the distinction of keeping one of the quietest and most elaborately furnished establishments in the city, where an array of beautiful women and good times reign supreme. A visit will teach more than the pen can describe. Alrighty then. <laughs> they were considered lewd at the time, but are pretty tame in our modern world. This is true. A military base was built near Storyville, and the rule was that no place of prostitution could be within five miles of the base, and so prostitution was outlawed in 1917. Mayor Martin Papa Behrman wholly supported the civic implementation of Storyville and traveled to Washington, D.C. in 1917 when there was a threat to shut down Storyville. And he said, you can make it illegal, but you can't make it unpopular. That's true. That's reasonable, I suppose. <laughs> Kelly, don't you love that the mayor went to Washington, D.C.? Basically, it sounds to me like he was fighting to keep Storyville open. Clearly. Well, and I'm sure it was a good source of income for the city. Absolutely. Many of the former brothels were demolished eventually. Today, only three structures from Storyville are still standing. The Iberville Housing Projects grew up in the remnants of Storyville. These projects were the last of the New Deal era public housing that had been built in New Orleans. They were demolished, and today they are a modernized apartment complex called the Bienville Basin Apartments. This is the fourth incarnation of the neighborhood. So finding a haunted former brothel in Storyville is impossible. But some former madams seem to still be around in the afterlife. Now, I wanted to talk about Storyville because you can't talk about brothels and madams and such in New Orleans without talking about Storyville. It was famous because this was a neighborhood that had legalized prostitution. So we really don't have an opportunity here to talk about haunted locations, but I wanted to make sure we got in there. And now all the madams that we're going to talk about aren't necessarily ghosts either, but I think it's important to talk about them too. And so this first one we're going to talk about is Kate Townsend. I tried unsuccessfully to find some stories about her ghost, which had a real likelihood of haunting somewhere because she was murdered. But I was unable to find any ghost stories connected to her, but she has a very important story that I thought we should share. There once stood a grand brothel at 40 Basin Street, and you're going to hear us mentioning Basin Street over and over again. 
this was like the Las Vegas strip where they had all this gambling going on. Well, that's basically what Basin Street was when it comes to the sex industry. So there's this grand brothel at 40 Basin Street, and it was there before prostitution was legalized and the neighborhood became known as Storyville. This brothel was built by Kate Townsend in 1866. I first heard about Kate Townsend, episode 59 of the Southern Mysteries podcast. I encourage you to check it out to get the full story here. Kate Townsend was born in Liverpool, England as Catherine Cunningham. She fell for a man she met working as a barmaid and became pregnant with twins. She left for America sometime in 1856 and landed in New York. In early 1857, she moved to New Orleans. Clara Fisher had a brothel on Philippa Street. She quickly embraced the beautiful and voluptuous Kate, who worked for her for six months. Kate then moved on to Maggie Thompson's brothel, where she stayed until she was 24 years old. She decided to make a go of it on her own and rented a house and made her way into the lives of politicians and influential people in New Orleans. She soon had enough money to build her own brothel, which, as you heard, she did at 40 Basin Street. This was a gorgeous house. It rose to three stories, was built from brownstone and marble. The marble also made its way inside for the fireplace mantelpieces. The furnishings were elaborate. They were made of black walnut with damask upholstery and velvet carpet covered the floors. The brothel and interiors cost around $100,000. Wow. Kelly, when I Googled how much that would be in today's dollars, that would be over $3 million today. Good grief. So she built this. Must have been quite the place. Yeah, she built this brothel and furnished it for that. Needless to say, she didn't have that kind of money. So where do you think she got it? Investors? Oh, yes. All those politicians (laughs) and influential people she was hobnobbing with. Did she blackmail them or did she just get it? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. It's I mean, possible. either either way, she could have either said, uh, I have some... I'm going to tell your wife. Yeah. Interesting information <laughs> that people might like to know. Or do you want to invest and get in on the money here? True. The grandest room was Kate's, of course, decorated with marble statuettes, a French mirror that was gilded, costly oil paintings, and of course, the finest linens. Kate's women were the highest paid in the profession. And most encounters started at $100. Wow. That was a lot back then. That was a lot (laughs) back then. Well, it sounds like she took good care of her girls. So I like that. She did. She made sure they were paid well. Things were great for Kate for many years, and her brothel was incredibly successful. As we read about Kate, we found that she had a man named Trevor Egbert Sykes, who was her fancy man for 25 years, and many stories claimed that they lived as husband and wife. He kept the books and ran the business. Obviously, we had to look up what this term fancy man was all about, and we found two meanings. One was that this was a pimp, which doesn't make much sense when talking about a madam. And the other was the lover of a lady of the evening. So this Sykes was a longtime boyfriend. She started seeing another man, and this made Sykes angry. But he was no match for Kate, who could apparently hold her own. And she was a fairly big woman. Ah. You don't want to mess with her. (laughs) He made her angry enough that she told one of her girls that she would basically like to gut him with a knife. This young woman talked her out of that, but she continued to beat Sykes off and on. On November 3rd, 1883, the Picayune published a story about the murder of Kate Townsend. Carved to death, terrible fate of Kate Townsend at the hands of Treville Sykes with the instrumentality of a bowie knife. Her breast and shoulders literally covered with stabs. Yep, Sykes killed Kate. He stabbed her 11 times with her own Bowie knife and claimed that it was self-defense, that she had been coming at him with a knife, and after he took it from her, she grabbed a pair of pruning shears. Sykes was tried and acquitted and actually presented a will that gave him Kate's estate. Eventually, that went to court, and with the court costs, legal counsel and such, Sykes got about $34, so not terribly much. Kate was laid out in the drawing room in an expensive white silk dress with all the furniture covered in white silk, too. She was buried in a $400 metallic coffin. Don't you love that he gets off for self-defense, but he stabbed her 11 times? Right. A little bit suspicious there. And I think what I read was three or four of them were fatal. So it's not like she just kept coming at him. So he had to keep doing it. That's crazy. He must have had really good defense. I guess. And the fact that he comes forward then and he has this will. I'm just glad that he had to fight so hard to get control of it that he ended up not getting really anything of it. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. 34 big old bucks. 
So as I said, I looked long and hard to see if I could find her ghost anywhere, and I was not able to do that. Now we're going to talk about Josie Arlington. The Arlington was an opulent brownstone opened up by Josie Arlington and was located at 225 North Basin Street. This was an elegant four-story mansion with a tulip-domed cupola, numerous bay windows, and the interior had the finest furnishings and the works of great artists. There was a Turkish, American, and Chinese parlor. So these were three individual parlors. So there was, That's you impressive. Could sit in the Turkish parlor, you could sit in the American parlor, or you could sit in the Chinese parlor. She had anywhere from 10 to 20 women working for her, with the higher number being during Mardi Gras season. Arlington wasn't her first brothel. She'd operated a house at number 172 Custom House, which earlier you heard that street is now today Iberville. She had a boyfriend through most of her early work and while at this house, but he shot her brother, so she, of course, broke things off with him. Not sure what the dispute was there, but clearly one pulled a gun on the other. About this time, the Storyville Ordinance went through and she opened the Arlington. Josie was one of the most notorious madams in Storyville, but her brothel was one of the classiest and she paid her girls well at $5 an hour. She'd been born Mary Dubler and started her life in prostitution at the age of 17. Josie was known to have a quick temper and to be a spunky fighter. Marita Woywood Crandall writes of Josie in her book, Josie Arlington's Storyville, The Life and Times of a New Orleans Madam. This crafty creature turned the tables from what had been a somewhat scary and dangerous beginning to an extraordinary existence. Josie unfortunately suffered from early onset dementia and died in 1914 when she was only 50. Wow, that's really young. Yeah. We talked about her grave, which is at Metairie Cemetery. And this is a tomb that was designed by Albert Weeblin. The memorial is a red marble tomb topped by two blazing pillars and features a bronze female figure. The grave became a tourist attraction because of her reputation, and her family was mortified by this, so they had the body moved. So she's not actually located in that tomb anymore. But her spirit remains, perhaps because the body was moved. One of the legends told about her former grave is that the bronze female figure leaves its post at the door of the monument and walks around the other graves. And early on, people claimed that the tomb would appear to burst into flames after dark. Two gravediggers said they witnessed the statue of the girl at the door vanish and walk about in the cemetery. And it said she continues to do that to this day. The urn outside the memorial is said to glow red as well. I'm wondering if perhaps, you know, she was used to the opulence and she had this beautiful tomb. And mm-hmm. when they moved her, they probably moved her to something, you know, basic, unassuming, not so flashy. That's a really good thought, Kelly, because she actually paid to have this tomb made. So she made it before she passed away. So she had it exactly how she wanted it. And then they moved her. Exactly. So she's going to come back and hang out where she wants to be. Our next madam is Lulu White. Lulu White was the diamond queen of Storyville. She was mixed race and ran a very successful brothel, Mahogany Hall. Her place was known for its diversity and wealthy white men loved it. The women here were mainly known as octoroons, meaning they were one-eighth black, and Lulu White was one of them. Octoroon is obviously considered offensive today, but it was an important distinction at the time because of what it revealed about slavery for black women who were raped and impregnated by white masters. And it put a light on racism as the fact that even having one drop of black blood made one segregated. But as we said, this brothel was very successful. White had it built for $40,000, and it was described as unquestionably the most elaborately furnished house in the city of New Orleans, and without a doubt one of the most elegant palaces in this or any other country. A pamphlet claimed that the girls were gifted with nature's best charms. The building stood four stories and had five parlors and 15 bedrooms. The exterior and interior were built from marble. Her life began in Selma, Alabama, and she came to New Orleans in 1880. She was called the Diamond Queen because she was known to dress in jewels and loved to look glamorous. When Storyville was shut down in 1917, she was left in debt and destitute before leaving the city. She died in poverty in 1931. Louis Armstrong recorded Mahogany Hall Stomp, which is a tribute to the place. The building survived most of the other brothels, serving as a department store warehouse until November 22, 1949, when it was raised and turned into a parking garage. Lulu White Saloon at 237 Basin Street still does exist. So it's one of those three structures left over from Storyville that's still around. 
And I like that they kept her name. Yeah, and that terminology, Kelly, they used the terms quadroons, octoroons, that kind of thing. I mean, can you imagine people walking around today saying things like that about people? Not at all. Yeah, I mean, now we just say they're people of color or, you know, mixed race or something. Or just people. Or people. (laughs) Our next madam is Norma Wallace. Norma Wallace was a woman born in Mississippi who relocated to New Orleans with her mother and brother. For some reason, she announced to her mother at the age of 12 that she wanted to run her own brothel someday. Not sure where her business sense (laughs) came from or why, but the prospect of being a woman servicing men and not in control of her own life was not appealing to her, apparently. So I'm not sure where exactly they were living that she was exposed to that. Right. I wonder if there was a little bit of background things that went on with her that maybe kind of formed her thoughts in that regard. I kind of wonder what mom had to do for work, maybe. Possibly, yeah. So being a madam to her was considered rather appealing because she would never have to be reliant on a man. She was so committed that she traveled to Chicago and New York to study under the best madams. She opened her own brothel at 1026 Connie Street in 1917. She had bad timing because if you guys recall, Storyville and that legalization of prostitution was shut down in 1917. But she still managed to be successful and she was never caught. She always got a tip that the police were coming and she would get out with the girls before they arrived. They did this by connecting a ladder to the saloon next door and then they would make their way across the rungs. Kind of makes me feel nervous for them after going up that ladder to take down Christmas lights this weekend. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? No. (laughs) And I talked about this. There was that hotel that we went to in Atlanta. Remember the one that had caught fire? Oh, right, right. And the people, one of the ways that they got out was putting a ladder from the one building over to the other and they went across it. I mean, that's scary enough, but you you have to do it in that circumstance. I guess they did too, but to have to do that on a regular basis, oh my Lord. Exactly. <laughs> oh. She had a gangster boyfriend that brought everything to an end when he shot her in front of the brothel. She lived, but eventually lost almost all her money when the banks collapsed in the 1930s. She started stashing money at the brothel since she didn't trust the banks. The brothel shut down in the 1960s when she was arrested. She decided to convert the place into an Italian restaurant after that. (laughs) I can't imagine going from that to an Italian restaurant, but okay. This was the end of openly run brothels in New Orleans. Norma found out her husband was having an affair and she shot herself in the head. Now it is said that she haunts 1026 Connie Street. There are seven apartments here today and people who live there claim to hear the tinkling of glasses. To smell the scent of cigarette smoke, Norma was a heavy smoker, and they hear music and husky laughter. Now we're going to move to Gallatin Alley, which was a notorious location that is now known as French Marketplace. This is a stretch of two blocks that has many shops, but was once filled with saloons, dance halls, and bordellos. This was a dangerous place full of thieves, drunks, drug dealers, murderers, and, of course, ladies of the evening. One would not believe that the ladies could be the most dangerous but many of them could be. They swindled the men, and few of them were even murderers. These included Mary Jane Bricktop Jackson, who stabbed many men, killing four of them, Bridget Fury, who was also known as Delia Swift, and America Williams, who was very tall and got into many brawls with men. It ran this way from 1840 to the mid-1870s. So I didn't find any hauntings that were in this alleyway or at the French marketplace. But this was, again, another one of those important locations when you're talking about the history there. And Kelly, I guess uh, being very tall makes you possibly a violent person who might get into brawls. (laughs) I'm so violent. I'm a lover, not a fighter. (laughs) Because it was so funny when I was reading about America Williams, they were just like, she was very tall. So she liked to brawl. Okay. (laughs) I guess it goes hand in hand. There was Smoky Row. This was another red light district that could be found between Bienville and Conti Streets along Burgundy Street behind the French Quarter. And this name came from the fact that it was a district where African-American women worked. This was a place where a cheap date could be found with many women working in cribs and charging as little as 15 cents. These women were hard, chewing tobacco, stealing from customers, and drinking rot gut whiskey. Yummy. So Smoky Row was definitely a rough place. Yeah, sounds like it. Now we're going to talk about a few locations that were former brothels. The Creole Gardens Inn is a historic 19th century antebellum mansion that was originally built in the 1840s for the Reverend Benjamin Palmer. 
He lived here during the Civil War and considered Jefferson Davis his friend. He stayed in the home until he died in 1902 after being struck by a streetcar. Today, this is a bed and breakfast with many remnants of the past. Some of the rooms had been part of the old slave quarters, and when Storyville was in full swing, some of the rooms were part of a bordello. Rooms have been named for some of the madams of that era. There is a lot of Southern charm here, but there are also spirits. When the inn was being renovated, contractors witnessed heavy doors closing and opening on their own. They also found bathroom tiles stacked very neatly one morning when they had not been left that way the day before. The energy seemed to be fed by guests staying, and the activity increased with people claiming to hear disembodied voices, feelings of being watched, and they could see shadow figures. The top spot in the inn is room 2C, where people experience cold spots and have been pushed or experienced vertigo. May Bailey's Place. This is at the Dauphine Orleans Hotel, and this sits on land that passed through many hands through the decades, most of whom were rich families. A charity hospital spent time here for a while. This hospital provided care to anyone regardless of race or social status. A red light sits outside May Bailey's Place at the Dauphine Orleans Hotel as an homage to its former history and is decorated with Victorian wallpaper and gold accents. This bar was one of the first and most notorious brothels just outside of Storyville. As was the case for many brothels, this one was around long before prostitution was legalized. May Bailey was granted her operating license in 1857. Now, Kelly, you're probably wondering, since this kind of business wasn't legal yet, how did May Bailey get that license? Maybe some politicians or police officers greasing some palms, so to speak. I would say that's probably what happened here. They actually still have that original license inside of May Bailey's place. So that's cool. Wow. And indeed, what happened is the police would go around and find these establishments to get them to clean up their acts. Well, May had no intention of shutting down. So she paid the fines ahead of time. And this turned into a brothel license. This also explains how hers became the first one. So basically, I would say she knew she was going to be fine. So she I don't know if you'd call it a bribe, but she paid him. Ponied the money up front. Yes. (laughs) The building that hosted the brothel was built in 1821. The original purpose of all things was to be a convent. Talk about really changing your direction. (laughs) (laughs) Several wounded Confederate soldiers died here during the Civil War, and many more found comfort in the arms of May Bailey's ladies. One of those former employees is said to still be roaming the halls of the Dauphine Orleans Hotel. She apparently was a courtesan who had had a special talent for mixing cocktails for her gentleman callers. And for that reason, most people who have encounters with this spirit have them in the back of the bar where liquor bottles move about and a shadow is seen in the mirror. She responds most favorably to men, although she has been blamed for locking a few in the bathroom. Civil War era ghosts are seen here too. Many are seen accompanied by a lady of the evening. A man in a general's uniform is seen sometimes pacing the courtyard looking rather worried. There are guests who claim to have had their beds shaken by something they can't see. Could this be residual movement for something else? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) The ballroom hosts a dancing entity that most people say is named Jewel, and a little orb seen around the spirit is said to be a ghost cat. Patrons see brochures and books fly off of shelves. May Bailey's sister, Millie, lived at the brothel and is seen roaming the hallways and is our woman in white here. She wears a wedding dress, to be specific. People have nicknamed her the Lost Bride, and it seems she's searching for her groom, who was a Confederate soldier that was killed. One of the craziest stories reports a bar stool levitating off the ground. That is pretty crazy. I can't imagine seeing that. I'd love to see a picture. Me too. Two of the main haunts are Suite 110 and Suite 111. Suite 110 likes to keep the guests out. Many times the door will not unlock or it won't open even when unlocked. Housekeeping staff has the most experiences with lots of poltergeist-type pranks and the lights are often turned off, leaving them in darkness. Guests complain of having their covers yanked off them at night, too. Suite 111 is right above the bar and in this room, objects and furniture get moved around on their own. The apparition people report in here is an African-American man and people tend to call him George. The Herman House is across the street from the Dauphine Orleans Hotel and is owned by the hotel. This home was owned by German-born Samuel Herman, Sr. He moved to the Louisiana colony to chase opportunity, and he found it through many investments. He married a woman from a wealthy family and worked as an agent and broker for plantations. In 1813, Herman and his family relocated to New Orleans and had architect William Brand build his home. It was done in the federal style and spared no expense, including several coats of paint. 
About six years after moving into the house, the English cotton market crashed, in which Herman was heavily invested. He eventually lost the house. Today, it's a museum known as the Herman Grima House. At some point, it was also known as the White Elephant. The White Elephant was quite different than May Bailey's place. It was pretty low class where the ladies stood in the doorways trying to entice the men to come inside. So I'm thinking this place had a lot more cribs, that kind of style. Sounds like it would have. They were not considered very classy. Two of these women were Nellie O'Neill and Eliza Riddle. Riddle was cunning and violent, known to beat up other women. One she clunked over the head on two separate occasions, and another one she hit with a lamp. So yeah, she was a fighter. Sounds like it. (laughs) She was arrested at least 24 times. Good grief. There were rumors that men had been killed at the White Elephant and buried in the courtyard. Not sure if Riddle had anything to do with that, but we wouldn't be surprised. She must have been tall. (laughs) That might be because, you know, she felt just fine brawling, Kelly. Apparently. The Herman house is reputedly haunted. Guests feel cold spots when the AC is off, bursts of an icy wind, and the disembodied sounds of soft music playing. Lights turn off and on by themselves, and footsteps are heard even on the carpeting. Wow, that's impressive. That takes some stepping Yeah. Near to Gallatin Street and on the side of the French Quarter sits the Mississippi River Bar. Locals call it the MRB. This was another tough area of town, and at about this point, it seems that most of the French Quarter was this way. Fights were a regular occurrence with the local papers reporting things like a barber striking a journalist, quote, in the left eye with a colt, thereby endangering his life and considerably marring his beauty, unquote. (laughs) Poor guy made him ugly. (laughs) Oh, poor baby. The Mississippi River Bar had been a brothel in the 19th century. There was a young Irish woman who was working there and looking for a way to get out. She fell in love with a young man who promised to marry her. He went off to war and was killed. And like so many of these stories, this one ends with her hanging herself out in the courtyard from despair. Her spirit is said to still be here. She hangs out in the women's bathroom most of the time where she turns the lights off and on. And when women are washing their hands at the sink and look into the mirror... They sometimes see the apparition of the woman standing behind them. That'd be terrifying. Now, we don't know how true this part is, but some stories claim that some of these women get their heads smashed into the mirror by this figure. Aye, aye, aye. And one story said that management did have to replace the mirror after something like this had happened. That's pretty scary. Yeah, so I don't know how true any of that is. Right. They did have to replace a mirror. And finally, we have Hotel Via Convento. The Hotel Via Convento is is located at 616 Ursuline Avenue, and there are claims that this is the most haunted hotel in New Orleans. Many of you have probably heard the song, House of the Rising Sun, and this hotel is rumored to be that very house. But keep in mind that many brothels had a carved quarter rising sun marking them in some way. So it could be argued that all brothels are houses of the rising sun. The land under this construction was owned by the Ursuline nuns. The Ursuline nun convent in New Orleans is one of the creepiest places when considering it in light of the vampire stories told about it. Kelly, I did the vampire tour in New Orleans, and this was, I think, the last location we visited. It was a fairly deserted street. The Ursuline convent is this really large convent. It's several stories, and at the very top are these shutters, and they're all closed up, except for there was one set of shutters that was open. And our tour guide told us those shutters are always locked shut. They should never be open. Interesting. And yet those shutters were open. That's just that one set. Then he proceeded to tell us about these casket girls. They needed to bring women over to give the men wives. Obviously, they didn't want to continue to have all these ladies of the evening coming over. They wanted to have some good girls coming. So the nuns were going to bring over these girls. And so they came over and they were called casket girls because they came with these boxes where they kept all of their belongings and that kind of thing. And they kind of resembled caskets. Of course, legends say that these young ladies were traveling on this boat just like Dracula. And by the time they got over here, a bunch of people on the ship were dead, drained of their blood. And it must have been these girls. So obviously, these are just stories that were told. But then the tour guide continued to tell us that these girls, when they got here, that those caskets were put up in this attic area of the Ursuline convent and that it was locked off and nobody was ever allowed to go in there. And that a few years back, there were these two women who were with these paranormal investigators that were across from the convent and they were watching it, trying to see if they could see when these shutters opened and closed. These young ladies went outside and they disappeared. 
They were found the next morning dead on the front steps of the Ursuline convent, drained of their blood. Oh, no. (laughs) Here we go. We're claiming that the, the casket girls had done this. Huh. Now, I couldn't find if this story was true in any way. But the one thing that is interesting about this is that that upper area is very secretive and is locked off. If you attempt to go up to that level, and I think it's the third floor, it's either the third or fourth floor, people have been arrested for trying to go up there. Oh, wow. And they say even the Pope is not allowed to go in there. So many people wonder, what are they hiding in this attic area? Something's got to be going on. And if it's that tightly secured, how are the shutters getting opened and closed? Exactly. So I would like to believe that they have relics up there that possibly are cursed or something. And that's why they don't want anybody going into that area. Could be. Anyway, that was just a little side note about these Ursuline nuns and their convent. The original convent started with 14 nuns who were sent to help the poor and sick and educate the young girls in the city. They built timber structures that, of course, didn't hold up in the southern weather. In 1823, they moved to the Ursuline convent that stands today. Apologies before I even begin this name, but Jean-Baptiste Poifaré purchased the land from the nuns and built a Creole townhome in 1833. The property was sold in 1843 to Octave Voorhees, and he lost it after the Civil War in 1872. The house passed through several hands and was bought by Pascal Terramina in 1902. The Terraminas lived there until 1946. The widow sold the property and it again passed through a few hands and was converted to housekeeping rooms. Many of the residents were students and they called it Old Town Villa. Fun fact, Jimmy Buffett was one of those students. The Campo family bought the Villa Convento in September of 1981. There are a variety of rooms for rent at the hotel, running from suites to smaller budget rooms. It was probably during the late 19th century that the house served as the brothel. The Hotel Villa Convento is thought to be one of the more haunted locations in New Orleans. Many people believe that the main ghost here is the former madam of the brothel. Women rarely experience anything here. Most unexplained activity happens to the men, and I think that's kind of why they think it might be the madam. One story reports that a couple checked into the hotel and the husband went out to have a smoke. He was startled when he heard his name. It was early in the morning and no one was up, but he still thought he would turn around and see his wife. She was not there. He went in and asked his wife if she had called him, and she said she had not. Later, they decided to head out and explore the French Quarter. They returned to their room, and the wife got into bed while the man went into the restroom. He heard a female voice say his name again. This was whispered in his ear, and so that really freaked him out, because then clearly he knows it's not his wife. Right, I would imagine. I don't want anybody whispering something in my ear when they're not actually there. (laughs) He actually yelled out and woke up his wife to tell her what had happened. They searched the room and found no one, of course. Guests claim to hear disembodied laughter and feel people sit on the bed that they cannot see. Many times, male guests claim to wake up and see female spirits shrouded in black-like shadows hovering above them and staring at them. Kalila Smith wrote New Orleans Ghosts, Voodoo and Vampires, Journey into Darkness, and he also founded the Haunted History Tours in New Orleans. In the book, he writes of an experience one of their tour guests told him on page 64. A man taking one of our tours reported a visitation from an entity in room 120 of the Velo Convento guest house. He told us that he and his girlfriend both experienced the feeling that they were not alone in their room. On their second evening in the guest house, he awakened in the middle of the night to find a woman sitting in a chair, staring at him, and then vanishing. The next night, he claimed to have had the same experience, only this time the apparition was that of a man. Although the manager of the guest house was unaware of any particular activity in that room, we were told that several guests have mentioned the sound of children laughing on the fourth floor where there was once an attic. This was not surprising because the guest house built in the 1840s was indeed a home for many years. There have also been unexplained electrical blackouts in room 209. The history of brothels, madams, and ladies of the evening in New Orleans is extensive. It's an important history. Is it a haunted history? That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, I'm looking forward to heading to New Orleans again someday and getting to check it out with you and getting to do some of those tours. The haunted history tour that you mentioned there that Kalila Smith started, it's uh, one of the tours that I took there. Excellent. It's the one I always recommend to people who are going. Nice. I can't wait. I've never been. And even though the vampire tour that they do there, it sounded kind of hokey to me, but I wanted to do it because I'd never done a vampire tour before. Why not? (laughs) It was the creepiest tour I've ever been on. I literally was looking over my shoulder as we were walking back to our hotel. I was just 
We want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. You'll want to continue to check out the website under the events to see what kinds of events we have coming up in 2020. We're going to be a little bit more limited than what we have been in the past because my parents are being very generous and taking us on an Alaskan cruise in June. It's so exciting. I can't wait. Yeah. So we're looking forward to that, but it's going to pretty much eat up all of your vacation time. Yeah, pretty much, unfortunately. So we don't have much to spread out for the rest of the year. And because it is in June, we're actually not going to be going to the Haunted America Conference this year. So we just want to make sure you guys are aware of that. Please go ahead and go. It's a great time. Do some of the investigations there, but Kelly and I will not be there this year. We will, however, be in Louisville, Kentucky, and we're going to be there over the weekend of April 25th and 26th. We're going to be doing a live show there with Hillbilly Horror Stories and the guys from the Brohio podcast. And along with that, we will be doing a tour at Waverly Hills. We're going to be doing the 8 p.m. tour on the 25th. So if you want to join Kelly and I for that one, make sure you sign up for that one at the Waverly Hills website. And I would do that ASAP because it books out quick and they only have 50 spots and actually they'll break us into two groups of 25. And so if you want to be in our group, you really want to get your ticket like right now. (laughs) Like yesterday. (laughs) And then we were planning on booking a private investigation on that Sunday evening. And I'd been told by the owner that they open up the booking window at midnight on New Year's. And I did not realize that, boy, you better get on the computer like before it hits midnight. As soon as the clock changes. And keep hitting refresh because Kelly and I rang in the new year and I was literally on the computer five minutes after that. I think it was even sooner than that. Yeah. And I went in to book it and it was already gone. Somebody had already grabbed it. Womp womp. Yeah. So (laughs) we were way bummed because we had all these plans for this private investigation. So what we decided to do instead is we're going to go on the public investigation which is Saturday night from midnight to 6 a.m. And that's on the 25th. So we're going to do the live show. We're going to do the tour. And then we're going to do the public investigation. I bought 15 tickets because I wanted to make sure that we could get enough for our group. I, I knew a cluster of people who were interested. And those are all spoken for at this point. So if you want to do that with us and you're not one of the people who's already told me that you want a ticket or has paid for your ticket, you need to go on Waverly Hills and see if you can get one of the spots on that public investigation on the 25th. We'd love to have you guys join us. We absolutely would. Now I have a couple of things to share with everybody. The first one is a comment that was made on the website for our episode 319 that we did on UL. This is from June. And she writes, don't know if this has been mentioned already, but eating pomegranate winter is to honor Persephone. Persephone was abducted by Hades when he saw her picking flowers one day and he dragged her to the underworld to be his queen. Persephone's mother, the earth goddess Demeter, discovered Hades' treachery. She demanded the gods force Hades to return her daughter, but Persephone had eaten four pomegranate seeds in the underworld and technically couldn't be freed. So apparently if she ate that, it locked her in. It was agreed that she would live on the earth for most of the year but would return to the underworld for four months every year. During Persephone's time in the underworld, Demeter mourns the loss of her daughter and winter falls on the earth. So I bet you're wishing that she never ate those pomegranate seeds. (laughs) Keep it warm all year long. (laughs) Darn girl, why did you do that? That's a good reminder, though, because I've been meaning to get pomegranates after we had spoken about them before Mm -hmm. so that we can try tapping the spoon on the back of them to get those seeds out. And that just reminded me when you shared that. So that's going to be up on our grocery list. Okay, very cool. And <laughs> I mean, we were wondering what was the point of eating pomegranates. Right. No. And then I got a message from Trey over on Instagram. Hi, this is just a random message from one of your listeners, but I thought you should be the first to know. I live in Michigan and my girlfriend and I belong to a church that is very modern and we were given a building that is originally one of the oldest Baptist churches in the state. Our church has a very new and laid-back style, so we decided to renovate the building and make it all new inside. No pews, chairs instead, no weird stereotypical church vibes. So my girlfriend and I went by there tonight to pick some stuff up from an office upstairs around 9 p.m., and this area of the building had not been touched yet and is mainly original structure. All the lights were off and all doors were locked, and we got to the top of the stairs and heard a woman singing for about 30 seconds right beneath us in the stairwell. It was getting closer and closer to us and stopped. We got what we needed and bolted out of that building. There were no cars in the parking lot or on the street at that time. 
That's incredible. And I love that his first thought was to contact you. <laughs> I loved it. Too, That's that awesome. Like, I mean, he literally wrote me an hour after it happened. That's amazing. So I said, whoa, and here's the thing. If someone were in there when you came in, wouldn't they holler hello or something to let you know they were there? And obviously they would have a light on. So I asked, do you know any history of the building? This could just be something residual too. And he said, exactly. And we have an alarm system that has to be shut off when someone is in the building. But when we got in, it was still hooked up. Wow. We're 100% sure no one was in there. And I've tried for years to find history on the building. But what I do know is that it's a church built in the mid-late 1800s and is one of only a couple historic churches downtown. There was a fire in the 1980s. Not sure of the damage, though. When we first received the building, there were staircases leading to nowhere and doors opening to walls and stuff like that. And what does that remind you of? That reminds me of the Winchester Mystery <laughs> No House. kidding. How was it, odd. Is it the same contractors? Right? So I said, whoa, again. Well, this certainly isn't the first haunted church I've heard of, but it always amazes me when I do hear of them. And then I asked if he minded me sharing. And then he just updated me here again. I hadn't read this yet, but he said, I promise this is the last update, LOL. But we ran the story by the executive pastor. And he actually was very interested and said one of the workers saw a full-bodied apparition of a woman on that same stairwell. Whoa. So, wow. I can't wow. wait to hear more stories. No, I mean, and that's a pastor. Yeah. That. So, that's amazing. So cool. So thanks for sharing that, Trey. I just love it when you guys share your stories. If you guys have stories, please email them to us at historyghostbump at gmail.com and we'd be happy to share them. Absolutely. Or as Trey did, he messaged me on Instagram. If you aren't following us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, liked us on Facebook, please do so too. Make that a resolution for 2020. <laughs> we want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. This has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Marianne Farley. We're going to be burying you under an obelisk headstone. And Lisa Bates, we're going to be burying you in a garden tomb. And Kelly, she actually goes by a different name, doesn't she? That would be my friend Gio. Thanks, Gio. Thank you to both of you ladies. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. was famous for the fact that it was a Nickelodeon carved to death terrible fate of Kate Hudson or Jesus Christ what am I doing I